Hey everybody, and welcome to the newest episode of the Blockbuster Podcast. I'm your host, Austin Hahn. And I'm Miller McGinn. And today we'll be covering Evil Dead Rise, the newest installment in the Evil Dead franchise. To get us started, let's go over the history of the franchise a little bit, give some context as to where we're at with things. Uh, it's, of course, a very Sam Raimi-directed franchise. He's pretty much taken part in every film, even the reboots, right? They're both Sam Raimi's? He's taken part, yes. I wouldn't say he directed the new ones, but he's definitely been... I think he's a producer on yeah, these two. Yeah. On, in the old ones, he pretty much he had spearheaded all of them. Um, so he started the Evil Dead franchise in 1981. It was one of Raimi's earlier films. He had Evil Dead 2 three years later. Six years after that, he had Army of Darkness, which was a little bit of a uh, goofier twist of the franchise. Uh, a very big departure from what the rest of the franchise has been, but a fan favorite and a classic over the years. They had a TV stint with Ash vs. Evil Dead from 2015 to 2018. I want to say that was on Stars. Yes. At the time? Yeah, it was Stars. And then the franchise, in terms of the big screen, saw a reboot in 2013, uh, coming back around to just Evil Dead, not the Evil Dead, but just Evil Dead. And now we're seeing the second installment since that reboot with Evil Dead Rise. Mill, you want to give like a little uh, vague plot description to get us started off? Yes, so Evil Dead Rise is kind of takes a different approach than the previous films. Of course, all the other previous films, aside from Army of Darkness, take place in a cabin in the woods somewhere. Um, this one kind of takes place in a whole different in a whole different kind of part of the world. Um, instead, it takes place in a in an old decrepit apartment building, specifically in a was it like the thirteenth floor in a certain apartment building? Yeah, it was on. Uh, it's in L.A. Yeah, in Los Angeles, correct. Um, and it follows a family, specifically a single mother and her three children, along with her kind of estranged sister, sister yeah. and just some of the residents on that floor, kind of like the side characters. Um, and pretty much what happens is, of course, like all other Evil Dead movies, a, nec- a Necronomicon, a Book of the Dead is found. Uh, some reading of the book ensues. Evil spirits come to the building and start possessing the tenants, of course, if you see the trailer, you know the main uh, the main one is the mother, and starts kind of raising havoc throughout the building, and all the characters just have to find a way to survive and escape the top floor of the building. Um, pretty standard stuff, uh, but very very different take on the franchise, but a very welcomed one I feel like. Yeah, you know it's really interesting. We've seen a few different franchises kind of see a change in environment lately. I know that the uh, most recent in the Scream franchise also took things to a major metropolitan area. Um, taking the Scream franchise into New York. So it's interesting to see that uh, a lot of these horror franchises have kind of strayed away from these kind of dark backwoods country areas, and they've kind of tried to bring horror into the more uh, urban environments lately. And I'd say uh, Evil Dead Rise does a pretty good uh, job of it, I'd say. Yeah, for the most part, it just, I mean, like I said, it takes place pretty much on one singular floor. I mean, of course, there are a few chances that they move to different parts of the building, but it all takes place in the confines of, like, one apartment building. Like, Yeah, it was a very uh, encapsulated story, uh, like, again, many of the franchises, but it was still very well told. Um, it was really interesting to see how this one is performed in the box offices. It's been in for two or three weeks now, and we were a little bit late getting to it. We saw it this recent Saturday, I believe. Or yes, this past Saturday. We saw it Saturday, because Mother's Day was on Sunday, so we went and viewed it on Saturday. And for being in the theaters for three weeks, it was a fairly packed-out theater. This one seems to have been kind of steadily bringing in income over the last several weeks instead of having that kind of opening week rush that a lot of films do. 
Right. This film came out in, on April 21st, and, I mean, it came out with other movies around the time. So, of course, you had uh, The Covenant, which is a Guy Ritchie film, big military mm-hmm. film. Um, you also had movies around that time, like you had weeks previous, you had John Wick come out not too far before it, Creed come out not too far before yeah, it. In horror, um, Russell Crowe's Pope's Exorcist just Pope's came Exorcist out Pope's Exorcist came out, yep. So it's competing with other horror films too. Um, of course, and then you have Guardians that just came out a week ago, which, you know, is the box office smash. And um, and of course, Mario is a big one that's been, yeah. you know, sweeping families and so this to see this movie do pretty well, being a horror movie coming out in April is a welcome surprise. Um, you know, as I looked right here, it only had a budget, a production budget of fifteen to nineteen million, mm-hmm. according to a wiki, which you know take that as with a grain Great of salt. salt. Yeah. Um, and as it states here, I haven't, I don't know if this is the current number or not, but it says it's grossed over one hundred thirty-one million dollars worldwide, and with a budget that much, it's. It, it states good. it's the most, the highest grossing film in the series, which isn't hard to believe with the first three kind of being like cult classic, um, kind of word of mouth films that kind of get garnered popularity like after mm-hmm. their original inception. Um, and I, I personally don't know how the 2013 movie did. Um, I haven't looked at anything about that. I really don't know the stats on that one either. And you know, it's interesting. We mentioned that 15 million went into production normally. And again, that's still speculative since it's such a recent movie. But I know a lot of uh, budgeting, especially for horror movies, goes into advertising as well. I think it's normally that the advertising of a film is pretty, unless it's a very high budget film, a lot of advertising is pretty comparable to what production costs are. I'd imagine they probably put at least 15 to 20 million into marketing this film. I've seen a pretty good bit of uh, online marketing on social media, like through TikTok, Twitter. Mm. Uh, They've done a great job. They've done a great job marketing this film. So I see right here. The 2013 Evil Dead reboot had a budget of 17 million, so not too far off from Evil Dead Rise, um, and it it grossed 97 million. So of course not as high as Evil Dead Rise, but still a pretty staggering number from like a ratio of production budget to how much it raked in. So yeah, absolutely. I don't remember it being too heavily marketed back in 2013 too. So for I, it to I vaguely remember commercials from back do then. Do you a little bit? But I uh, I mean around that time. You were at a weird stage in horror back in 2013. You had recently had a movie like Cabin of the Woods pretty much make fun of, kind of make a satire of kind of Cabin in the Woods type movies, and Uh this came out after it. So it was just kind of an interesting thing. People were getting very tired of the tried and true horror tropes. Do you think that goes to the credit of, like you mentioned, where um, a lot of horror movies are kind of moving to more urban areas rather than like the Cabin in the Woods because it's been done so much? Maybe so. Uh, it's kind of hard to say. You know, a lot of it, too, is that this is a rebooted franchise. We've talked about the prevalence of reboots lately. People are almost in this nostalgic state of mind, it feels like, with movies. So maybe kind of in the earlier 2010s and the late 2000s, people were kind of getting tired of the usual and wanted to mix up in their films. It seems like right now people have been on a pretty big wave of nostalgia because as much as we like to complain that everything's getting rebooted, even these reboots are still tending to perform really well in the box offices. So maybe we're just seeing them tap into that old nostalgia of the 80s, 90s. We talked about the success of Cobra Kai the other day. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've seen the Star Wars franchise get a uh, modern reboot in the last few years. I mean, it's it's really been a long streak of nostalgia in Hollywood for a while, and I think this may be a good indicator of that. Well, I think I think the one thing you got to applaud this movie as well as the 2013 reboot is rather than just try to take the Ash Williams character, who's such a larger-than-life horror icon character, and try to recast him, because Bruce Campbell's, like, synonymous with the role. Oh, yeah. Um, so try to recast that character, 
They just have the idea of the Necronomicon and the Book of the Dead and a lot of these same tropes from the movies just recasted with different characters. And I, I especially like how they just use the um, just the Evil Dead name and really just kind of create a movie with a lot of those same tropes rather than just make a reboot, straight up reboot, which, you know. It is nice. It feels so... I mean, I, I think the biggest thing that they have in common with the older ones is that they take the necessary elements, like you said, the Necronomicon, Deadites, that concept of possession, and I feel like the biggest influence is, is the camera work. It has mm -hmm. a lot of that Raimi camera work, even with him not being like actively directing uh, in these reboots. Of course, he is a large part of them, but even the camera work feels very reminiscent of having Raimi behind the camera. Uh, they still do those same kind of dragging... Uh, free cam shots where they're floating through the air as if from a first-person perspective of an entity. Um, and it's such a unique form of horror direction. It's something that a lot of other franchises, particularly slashers, haven't done. Um, at its heart, Evil Dead is somewhat of a slasher. It doesn't have one big bad. No. But with these evil entities kind of working through these possessed people, there's typically like a big bad of the films. There's either this one particularly Possessed Demon that's like the main antagonist, and we saw that in Evil Dead Rise. Mm -hmm. And what's the actress's name that was in Rise, you said? Oh, I just had it right here. Uh, Alyssa Sutherland. Alyssa Sutherland. And like you said, you were you're giving her praise the other minute. Uh, she really did do a fantastic job with this one. And you can tell she really cares about like playing uh, Ellie, who's the mother in the film. Um, just if you go on Twitter, there's a lot of behind-the-scenes, back, gosh, I can't speak, um, behind-the-scenes action and... She put a lot of stuff on her Twitter of just being able to play that character, and she seems like, and it, she's like doing it constantly, like putting out stuff constantly. Just how much fun she had on the set. It just looked like it was a fun set to be a part of, and I believe it because she plays off the newer Evil Dead's interpretation of humor is very different from the older franchises. So the first, and I literally just finished rewatching the first Evil Dead right before we started recording. It's a very, you know, low-budget, early 1980s horror movie, and so it isn't meant to be humorous. They went pretty deadpan on the first movie, and the humor was a little bit inadvertent with the practical effects being low-budget and the acting. You know, a lot of these folks were younger and in their earlier acting careers. Like, it's a little bit that 1980s, you know, campiness that you mm -hmm. expect out of the time period. And that campiness gave it a certain aspect of humor that they seemed to really tap into with the second one, they played it up a bit in Evil Dead 2, and they really went over the top with uh, Army of Darkness. And Ash vs. Evil Dead was almost like a horror comedy show. So it seems like they progressively kind of ramped up and tapped into the nostalgia and comedy mix over the years with the originals. With these, they definitely seem to lean further into horror. And their comedy seems to be almost like a grotesquely dark humor. Like yes. the possessed people, the deadites in the films, the lines that they say or the behavior they exhibit is like so... Crude and... Crude. It's like this woman goes from being such a loving mother and then it's like five minutes after she's possessed, she's like, what was the line from the movie? I'm tired of you titty-sucking parasites. Yeah. Like, that's pretty out there. And it's it's funny, it's good, it's... You know, it's hard seeing a mother speak that way to her children and the kids just yeah, look you, scarred. Yeah, you see that, and then you also have the stuff, um, what was my, one of my other favorite ones? Oh, just the fact that, I don't know if we're diving too deep into spoiler territory here, but... Um, 
I, I'd say we're fine. I mean, it's been out for a while, so if you if you spoiler wanted... warning here, if you don't want to hear anything further, feel free to tap out now. But 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 ahead. I mean, to be fair, it's been out for almost a month now, and it's I think it's already on digital. So if people have wanted to watch it, it's already out there. And yeah. to be honest, there's not really much spoil in this movie. I mean, what you see is what you get with this film. Nothing big, but it's a, um, it's a pretty action oriented film. Yeah, but <laughs> that being said, one of my favorite parts of the movie is, of course, you find out the. Kind of the this last girl of the film is the sister, of mm-hmm. course. And um, we find out at the beginning that she's kind of a groupie for like a band. And she kind of sleeps around with members of a band. She finds out she's pregnant at the very beginning of the movie. And you have the multiple times throughout the movie you have um, the characters and the, the possessed characters like mocking her for being uh, pregnant. And how she's scared of being a mother. And I just thought that part of that, that was pretty funny how the Deadites even just mock her for like being pregnant and scared of mother. Yeah, there was a lot of like very slut shaming demons. They're they're, like making fun of her. They call her, she always, uh, one of the contentions between the girl and her sister was that she hate being called a groupie. Like that was her, the the mother. slut or something like that? Yeah. She's like, oh, you groupies. It's like, oh, she's just fed up with it. Like, it doesn't even come across harshly in the film. It's almost like the protagonist is just so fed up with that trope being thrown on her uh, that it almost adds a different layer of humor to it. Um, I found some of the characters they implement to be funny, like the older guy down the hall Mm -hmm. uh, with the shotgun. He's just such a, like, crotchety old man to be walking around with a shotgun on the 13th floor of an apartment building for some reason. But he also also had, like, some caring aspects to him, too. Like I mean, he was a good guy, but his, his... character design overall was clearly a little bit comedic i mean what does he do he walks out in the hallway the first time we meet him he's smoking a cig and he's uh trying to hit on the (laughs) the uh sister yeah yeah i mean it's pretty clearly hammed up a little bit in terms of his character um then you also have the uh the two brothers i think was it two brothers or was uh, it it was a brother and two sisters are you talking about the family? Dynamic? No, I'm talking about the other guy that was on the floor, the uh, Hispanic kind of. Oh, the younger brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They were cool too. I, I thought they were like the nice kind of stereotypical. Yeah, like, kind of like the nice young helping, kids. Helping hand to... neighbor, like. Yeah, I mean, it was like a nice little, and that was another different thing too. A lot of the uh, Evil Dead's have been restricted to friend groups only. It was like kinda... teenagers. And... Yeah, it was very kind of interesting to see this commingling of. You know, an apartment complex, you're getting all these different ages and races and backgrounds and characters. And it was kind of interesting to see how just this random conglomeration of people all react to this sudden paranormal. <laughs> so I guess there's only three tenants on that floor. Because <laughs> we only saw the uh, the old man, the two brothers, and then, of course, the family that's in the film. Yeah, I mean, pretty much until the uh, post-credit with the uh, girl, which is almost played right, up for yeah. jokes that she was so oblivious to everything. Um, it was it was just very different, and I appreciate that. It yeah. wasn't overly serious, I'd say. I mean, it was a certainly dark tone, but mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was overbearing with its darkness. No, it, it was definitely disturbing, and it had some very dark elements in it. But at the end of the day, Evil Dead's going to keep that campiness to it. Even the 2013 film, which seemed to be taking a more, uh, you know, darker approach to the horror genre, um, aside from the campy nature of the original, still had some campiness in it, especially in the last 30 minutes of the uh, reboot. And this film definitely keeps up with a lot of, like, the dialogue's very campy, and mm-hmm. some of the gore and the way the characters look are very campy. And I just, I, I think it still keeps the nature of what Evil Dead was back in the, the 
original trilogy. I found it so funny. There was one thing in particular that kind of stuck out to me. That scene, so a very slim portion of the film, they kind of change things up a little bit, and their camera view goes through the peephole of the front door of the apartment, mm-hmm. so it's like fisheye lensed through a peephole perspective. And this, um, their possessed mother is paking, pacing back and forth outside the door, and the youngest daughter is kind of looking outside at her possessed mom like, oh my god. And this, you know, demon kind of like knows that this little girl is watching through the peephole. And it's so funny because we see at the start of the film, before the mother's possessed, it's like a very, you know, they're in L.A. It's a very, like, modern, it's not like a Western thing at all, very, very just rural metropolitan family. But suddenly when the mom is possessed and trying to play up how nice she is and how sweet she is, and she's covered in blood and she just looks horrible, but uh, it's almost like she adopts a southern accent. Like, this demon just gives the mom a southern accent for some reason. It's like... Now let me on in now. <laughs> Did uh, you notice that? Yeah. I found it so funny that a demon of all things is like, let me let me give this mom a little southern twang to, to convince this daughter. Yeah, just to, to make her seem like nicer. Yeah, it was just kind of funny to me. Um it's little stuff like that. Like it's these little touches that you really can't really put words to very mm-hmm. easily, but it just kind of gives everything this lightness to it. Uh-huh. Just that southern accent out of nowhere, it just stuck out to me a little bit, especially being, like, from the south. I was like, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, it was definitely... And then, of course, like every Evil Dead film, you get the the big showdown at the end between the big monster, the Deadites, and oh yeah, uh, the titular hero, which in the old films is Ash, and, of course, this one, as we mentioned, is the sister. And she's even spitting out, like, one-liners before she, like, goes to cut up the... Uh, cut up the creature with a chainsaw. Oh, yeah. I forget what the line she said, but it's just, like, stuff and you're just like... Oh, like, I see where the, the campy script writing came in. Like Oh, it was... Oh, so the whole joke, the running gag, like you mentioned earlier, was that this demon kept calling her, like, groupie slut the whole movie. Uh-huh. And then finally, when she's about to kill the final demon, uh, that demon kind of... The face relaxes, and it looks more like her sister again, and, and she calls... What was the sister's name? Um, I'm drawing Beth. a blank. Beth. Yeah, Beth. And she's like... Beth, please don't do this. And she's like, only my sister calls me Beth! And she, like, finishes she, like, it off. kicks it like a fucking Because she was just so sick of getting called a slut yeah. all night. Um, and that was kind of funny, too. And it was all really kind of played... It wasn't played up, even. It was like a subtle, underlying humor to the whole thing. Yeah, I agree. I, um... I thought... I thought the campy elements were really good. But I also was pretty impressed by, the like, the lengths this film went. Um, yeah. Compared to, because you know the other films, um, of course you have like teenager characters. You mean like, lengths in terms of like a tour? Or the lengths of like, okay, uh, man, it's like in terms of gore. Or... I, I wouldn't say gore because the films all have gore. I would just say in kind of the way. I wouldn't say it. You know, I guess it does kill kids. Like kids die. In oh this yeah, film, I mean the kids get these, possessed. These and kids die, die I mean, and possess, and you know you don't see it much with the other films because it really doesn't pull its punches. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the visual discomfort it invokes, it's pretty up there. Yeah, I didn't know how to how to word it, but it's just like it. Yeah, it doesn't pull any punches. The other films, of course, you don't feel as bad because they're kind of like kind of d bag teenagers, yeah. like just going around like yeah, you know, of course this the stoner and you have the. The jock who's trying to get in a girl's pants and 
you know, you have the bimbo, and, and you know, the, you kind of you're kind of like rude innocent. for him. Like you're like you don't really care. Yeah. This film is interesting because you have these innocent kids who just stumble upon oh, the Necronomicon. They're like dons. Yeah, yeah, they get. I mean, and like these kids do like disturbing things in this film when they're possessed. It's like, ugh, like yeah, and they they do not hold back, and like that's where I think the fact of it being a darker take is definitely shown there's like, this one scene again and spoiler warning again if well i mean we've already spoiled a lot if somehow somebody skipped so. forward or whatever but um there was a scene that reminds me of that jennifer lawrence movie oculus from years ago yeah where you remember she takes a bite out of a light bulb yeah oh they did that and ramped it up to like a with thousand. a wine glass right yeah one of the one of the daughters uh gets possessed and she's kind of starting to turn and nobody really noticed because they're still figuring out how these possessions work, and no one was keeping an eye on her. And her brother, it was her brother, right? Kind of yes, goes into yes. the kitchen and he's like, "Hey, uh, what you doing?" And she's sitting, or she's like standing on the kitchen counter, but she's just squatting like down over, like a frog, yeah. like a little frog squat almost. And you just hear glass kind of crunching, and you're like, "Oh." Ooh. Well, you don't even, you just hear something crunching and she turns around, she's eating glass uh, the, and they do a yeah. close up on it in her throat, like yeah. slicing at her one point she swallows glass and it's so interesting because it doesn't protrude through the skin, but you can see the jagged edge of a glass poking at her skin and it doesn't rip through the skin, but you can see like the under skin turn red, like the internal mm-hmm. bleeding of it. It was such a... Like whoever did the effects on that, it was it was disturbingly good. Like it made me wince. That scene, I was like, just that whole sequence was. And then you also get the the scene that everyone was talking about because, of course, this was shown at South by Southwest like a month or two ago. It was the big one that you know Bruce Campbell and Raimi and uh, all the producers showed off. Uh-huh. The big thing that people took out of this was like, oh, you're not going to see a cheese grater in the same way. Oh, and, oh yeah. and the same scene, you get a good like a gruesome scene where the brothers try to escape the sister. And she takes a cheese grater and just shoves it on his leg and, like, pulls with force. And you just see, like, the blood and all the, like, the scrapes on his leg. Yeah, he's, he's crawling. He's trying to crawl away on the floor. And she smacks it into the calf of his leg. And, and rips just, it. Oh, and she just, it, it isn't even, like, a quick Band-Aid rip. It's, like, a slow drag and, oh. Ugh. It's, there's oh. some there's some creative sequences they do in this, and they do not pull punches when it comes to gore in this film. They really don't. It was very well done. I mean, there there were some like little bit of tropey stuff. Um, the fact that there was like a wood chipper in the basement in the middle of a big city uh-huh. for some reason was kind of funny. And a chainsaw was just down there. And a, and a chainsaw, yeah, it was like a lawn service place, but uh, it was pretty cool to see. Like it was. Whatever flaws were in the movie, you're going to have such a good time watching it that they just don't stand out. You know how some yeah, movies, yeah, yeah. if you're sitting there bored or you can't really get invested, it's almost easier to find flaws because you can't get into it. With this one, it's such a fun ride. It's like, you know it's not, you know, the the pinnacle of cinematography, but it's it's such a fun but ride. it's got so many great shots in it. It does. It really does. I like, like- the... I love that section with the little fish eye lens. The fish eye, and I love that they continue the trend of all the old Evil Dead movies where the, uh, the kind of the evil, like the force is shown with that like chasing camera, like fast-paced chasing camera. Oh, yeah. I thought that was awesome. I thought some of the scenes where um, where the mother gets possessed, where, um, what's her name? Ellie gets possessed in the elevator was awesome, where you get to see like the kind of the elevator take a mind of its own and 
the cords come down and end up like hanging her essentially and like strapping her to the elevator. That was really that good. scene was cool. I, oh, and when she was like walking into the apartment and she was like backlit by the hallway mm-hmm. and you just see this like shambling silhouette of her, that was pretty good. Uh, I liked. There have been a couple of consistent tropes. We mentioned the uh, chainsaw, but they also were able to bring back the double barrel shotgun. Yeah, like you mentioned, the uh, the neighbor, the older neighbor that was across the down the hall had a uh, double barrel shotgun. Coincidentally, not a twelve gauge, but a double barrel. Yeah, um, well, twelve gauge can still be a double barrel. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, the double barrel, because I think the franchise has a long history with double barrels. Yeah, the first Evil the Dead was a stick. double barrel. The boomstick. Army of Darkness. Yeah, the boomstick. The famous boomstick was a double barrel. I, I'm sure he had one in Ash versus Evil Dead. He does. He keeps it. Yep. Was there one in the last Evil Dead? Ooh, that's a good question. I do remember the chainsaw. I don't remember. There, I I caught that part. There was a chainsaw in the final confrontation. I don't know that there was a shotgun. Did she strap it to her hand in the last movie? I completely forgot. She did. She I did. thought she did strap it they to her hand. They made the joke. Her her hand was broken or cut off and somehow... She just sawed it off, right? Yeah, I think maybe she got injured by it and she had to cut off like mm-hmm. the infection before she got That's to That's what it was. She got bitten or she got attacked by one of the deadites. And... I can't remember how she strapped the chainsaw to herself, but it was super reminiscent in what they do of Army of Darkness where he has like the prosthetic hand that mm-hmm. he removes and puts on a chainsaw. But uh, that one definitely had a fun conclusion. Yeah, lots of blood. That's why I thought the last one was the bet. Was the good part of the last one was the last thirty minutes where it just went all out like campy with the chainsaw and yeah. pretty much was the final survivor, much like Ash was in the original. And pretty much, I I remember that scene had a lot of great practical effects, especially the the end of that movie had like raining blood like for the last like ten five like five ten minutes, and it oh, was yeah. all like. It was, like, like continuous. <laughs> it was practical, too. Like, I mean, of course, you kind of have to, but it looked good. Like, they put, like, a filter on or something like that to make uh-huh. it look like it was bloodier than it was, and it's, it was pretty cool. It was crazy. That that blood soaking, they carried that on with Evil Dead Rise, tons and tons of blood towards the conclusion, towards the uh, climax. I Man, it was just a fun movie. It was fantastically done for such a low budget, too. It, it maintains the feeling of the franchise. I, I don't have a single complaint about this one. No, I don't either. I, uh... I gave it a four on Letterboxd. It is currently, I think, my sixth favorite movie of the year out of 25, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally enjoyed it. If we want to go on the horror spectrum, I personally enjoyed it a little bit more than Scream 6. I know that might be a hot take, but I just love the Evil Dead franchise. I think this the, the cinematography in this was great. The fact that they pulled no pull, didn't pull any punches with you know, the subject matter and the kids, and I, I love the campy nature of it. Um, and I just feel like, I just feel like it's just a fun horror movie. I feel like you don't really get many fun horror movies anymore because you know you have the spectrum where you you go for the cheap jump scares and you go for, you know, just really weak storytelling. Of course, this is no like knock out of the park with storytelling, but I feel like mm-hmm. what it lacks in storytelling, it makes up for in just great practical effects or just great kills or great you know. And I feel like you just lack that in modern horror movies. But then, of course, you have the other side of the spectrum where horror movies are taking a more psychological, like, art house approach. Yeah, And you have to think when you watch them, and it warrants multiple rewatches. And, you know, at the end of the day, you just want to go into a horror movie and just, you know, love, like, enjoy what you're watching, no matter how bad or campy it is. And I feel like this is a great example of that. Yeah. I mean, there's always been such a great coexistence between horror and comedy. Like, Evil Dead has never been a dedicated, aside from the first film, has never been a dedicated horror. But, um... Seeing them shift the dial from being predominantly comedy to predominantly horror, mm-hmm. 
and still do it so well, I'm glad to see it. It's, it's a nice change of pace from other things, like you said. And I just personally felt like, uh, along with that, I just felt like it was an easy watch. You know, nice seven minutes, pretty easy horror movie yeah. to watch. Like it was It wasn't too lengthy. They don't. They didn't feel the need to make it like a two-hour slugfest or anything mm-hmm. like that. You know, and I can appreciate a shorter movie. It's become a really popular thing in recent years to have like a super long artsy film. But when you can just make one that's concise, it does what it needs. It hits its emotional points. It gives you exactly what you're hoping for and doesn't feel the need to drag it out, I can really appreciate that. I think this one was perfectly timed. Yeah, I, I just think that, you know, of course the weaker stuff in the film is kind of the setup and the stuff for the family drama and everything at the beginning of the film. Um, and I think, but it hits the ground. When it hits the ground run, it, it goes. Like, it does not stop or slow down. Oh, yeah. Like, the horror, or the gore continues, the action, I mean, and I would just have my eyes glued to the screen after maybe, like, the 20-minute mark or so. It's just... It, it keeps you on your seat. It keeps you on the edge of your seat. So Yeah, the character introductions did drag a little bit. I feel like it served its purpose. I mean, with the whole family, with what plays out through the film, it's nice to have a little bit of investment in them. You know? Right, it, it kind of, I wouldn't say it exceeds, but it, it meets. They definitely played up the relationship between the mother and her sister at the start. Mm-hmm. And I like that because with the mother being the main antagonist and the sister being the main protagonist, it does give a certain degree of tension to the rest of the film. Right, and I like how you see that connection of the uh, the, the main character, the sister, the, uh, what's her name? Sorry, I keep going to names. Uh, Beth, the main sister that we follow in this film, has to go and see, you know, the mother, Ellie. Uh-huh. Um, her sister, kind of for advice, because, you know, she finds herself, like we mentioned, pregnant. Pregnant, all trying that. Trying to figure out, like, what she needs to do next and how to, like, be a mother, because she sees her sister be such a loving mother and... And it just, I mean, in the context of, like, family stuff, she came at the right time because we find out the mother's uh, husband left, the father to her kids left, and, you know, she's about to be uh, kicked out of this apartment building. And, of course, it wasn't a good time for the uh, horror aspect and the possession. But, you know, I mean, I I feel like it met the criteria. I mean, I certainly didn't, like, sympathize with these characters, like, tremendously, but I feel like it met just enough to where, you know, the impact was felt when these characters are possessed or killed, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was interesting to see normally, again, with it being such a different environment, normally with the Evil Dead films, a lot of the horror starts before the introduction of the evil book and all that because it kind of plays up the atmosphere a bit as they're introducing characters. They'll be in a spooky cabin. It'll be dark outside. The house will be creaking. Maybe they'll do, like, a few shots that kind of put people on edge. Yeah. Or they'll use a few... uh, audio cues that kind of put the audience on edge and kind of prime everybody for the film. With this one being set in a high-rise apartment, the tone shift was very palpable. You don't really start the movie on edge. You kind of have to build up to it a little bit rather quickly because they find the book, they haul it back, and then you kind of know where things are going to go from there. And the horror really doesn't start until the book is unleashed. I couldn't really think. Now, aside from the title sequence, because the movie starts with that title sequence where it's a separate group of Mm -hmm. kids... Dealing with their own possession. And it's more like a cabin in the woods. like Yeah. They start out with a very, very much cabin in the woods trope. An exact cabin in the woods oh. trope. Um, and then they see how they tie that back into the film later, which I loved. I thought that was a really nice touch. Because um, it kind of... It does prime audiences for the film in that introduction. And then it takes a step back. And it starts them fresh. Introduces the main characters of the film. 
So you know what level of gore to expect. Mm-hmm. You know how the possessions are kind of going to work. You you understand the danger that they're going into. And I think mm-hmm. that's an important thing for the Evil Dead franchise, that the audience understands the danger that the protagonists are going into, because it builds tension later. So I think it was very well done. And the fact that they were able to tie the ending back into the title sequence, kind of end it almost in that cycle, I thought it was nice. I did too. I thought it was a cool way to tell a story. And um, just also, I just want to mention that title sequence was incredible at the beginning of the movie. It really was. The, the visuals of it too, yes. with she, her rising up out of that, like, oh. And the text behind her, it's just, I know. Well, the it text, was so evil dead. The like, text also reflected off the water too. I uh-huh. thought that was a really cool touch. Like it's the just whole little thing. things like that are just really cool to see. Oh, it was an amazing looking shot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just... It was very unsettling. It's a great way to start the film, set the tone. It looked fantastic, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. Why don't we try and rank the Evil Dead movies? That might be kind of fun. Ooh. Are we we counting Ash vs. Evil Dead? Uh, We can leave the show out. We can leave the show out. So we'll just rank the five. Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, Evil Dead 2013, and Evil Dead Rise. Okay. So we'll, we'll mix together both. Of course, they're very different. Let's, let's see how we, uh, feel about everything all right you want me to go first or you want to go first go ahead should we start with worst to best or best to worst so i i guess i can do my worst and you do your worst so we'll just go back and forth all right let's go for it so personally i think my worst and it's so hard because i do enjoy all these films at least aspects of all these films i probably will go the reboot the 2013 reboot I, like I mentioned, I loved the last 30 or so minutes of this film. I thought it was awesome. Mm. But I feel like it takes so long to get into this film. And I feel like I was not invested in the characters like I was in the original Evil Dead. Um, it, it's very slow at points. Um, and, I mean, it pay, it pays off pretty well at the end of the movie. But I feel like it just kind of ends abruptly. I also didn't like the aspect of, if you haven't seen it, the, uh, the main character is the one that gets possessed at the beginning of the film. And I just thought it was a weird route to take. Um, of course, it still did have some campy and creepy imagery. and um, But, I mean, it, it, I still enjoy it. Uh, but it's just it's not as good as the other ones. It just shows how great this franchise is. I'd agree. I remember that ending being a little bit abrupt. Mm-hmm. I just I think they had to reorient themselves and find their feet a bit with changing the tone of things. I think they learned their lessons from that one. And they, that's why Evil Dead Rise is so good. Um, with it being a test bed, it did just kind of have a little bit of a hard time getting on its feet. Um, you know, still had its fun moments, but I, I agree with that being at the bottom of mine too. Let's see. I, I think for my second worst, after oh, sorry, for the four for your number four for my number yeah. four, I think I would have to do Army of Darkness. Maybe Army of Darkness. I think so. That's fair. I mean, it's that's tough. It's fun. I noticed, so I watched Army of Darkness a few months back, actually. The camera work in it is still very much Raimi, but some of the sequences get especially, like, jarring. Like, the camera work isn't just the way that Raimi normally does it. It's like it flies around so much. I don't ever get, like, motion sick or anything, but, like, the way the camera was moving in that movie was almost, like, gut-churning in some sequences. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Which maybe that's the whole point of it. Maybe it's supposed to put you on edge like that. But it's like the fun parts of it and campy parts of it were great. When it did go into horror, it was like such a jagged. It it was like how Marvel does all those jump cuts and fight sequences. 
but it added the speed of the Raimi cameras when he's in the demon possession, like first person. And man, it was, some of those scenes were a little bit hard for me to watch. Um, yeah, so that's your four? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to have kind of a hot take with my four. Go I'm going to put the original Evil Dead at my four. And that's, and that's what I'm saying. I love all these films. I think they all have good stuff to their credit. Uh-huh. I just feel like it It was still trying to... Of course, it's the first film of the franchise, so it was kind of finding its footing. I feel like it was pretty much Sam Raimi just trying to make a straightforward like horror movie. Um, of course, you have some really good effects, very good practical effects. Of course, they're not the greatest low-budget film. Uh, and to be expected, you get low-budget film uh, effects for a film that's made in 1981. Um and I feel like you really don't get the aspects that you expect from an Evil Dead film until like maybe the last 20, 30 minutes of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I don't know. I just think I don't remember as much about this one, even though, like you mentioned, you just watched it. Um, I just feel like it has, I, I remember more about the cabin and the setting and everything from the sequel films, mm-hmm. or the second one specifically, more than I do this one. But I do, I did enjoy seeing... Um, Kind of the cast of characters that Ash goes with, including, you know, I think his sister is the main one, right? Yeah. Is Cheryl. seeing his innocent sister being possessed. I thought that was a cool aspect. And it was seeing kind of Ash's mental state deteriorate <laughs> over that film. Yeah. I mean yeah, especially towards the end, he's like very tortured by it. He's like, Why are um, you doing this to me? All that. Um, but it is what one of the more straight faced evil deads, kind of before they sell into right. their comedy. And I think this but I do have to acknowledge I gotta keep stressing how much like I enjoy aspects or I enjoy all these films in this franchise. Mm-hmm. I just and you gotta appreciate this one that really put Sam Raimi on the map and also pretty much made Bruce Campbell the star he is today. Yeah, I still think it, I mean it's fair to put it in number four. It all just depends. It's on just because I think them. I really enjoy the top three. Yeah, and I mean you know kind of like how we said that the the Evil Dead uh, twenty thirteen reboot is at number five because it was kind of struggling to figure out its tone and get on its feet. It's kind of the same thing with the first Evil Dead. It benefits from that classic feeling to it and the nostalgia of 1980s horror. But at the end of the day, it was his first in the franchise, and it was kind of like a test bed for them to figure out. Again, when they learned how to lean into that campiness, that's why Evil Dead 2 was so good, and that's kind of why aspects of Army of Darkness and its humor were so great. Uh, They just hadn't quite figured that out yet with the first one. So I think that's understandable. Uh, I'd actually put uh, the first Evil Dead at my number three. Oh, really? Yeah? Yeah, I would. So, I mean, I'm not too far off from how you feel on it. Uh, I I appreciate a lot of that 1980s campiness of it. I think it was fun. The characters were fun. Um, the effects were good to see. Because they were that budget at the time, that being one of his earlier horrors, you could clearly tell it was fairly low budget. Mm-hmm. We kind of mentioned earlier, we were kind of chuckling that it had, like, old claymation in it and everything. Yeah. But to me, there's just such a, a charm to that old kind of janky horror a little bit i i just had fun watching it and as we mentioned some of those claymation effects especially near the end are just really disgusting like they, the oh, fact yeah. that it's all claymation but they make it look so disgusting is pretty Cla- impressive claymation is really interesting is that it ages so well because technically it's still a modern medium like people still make claymation films mm-hmm. the new pinocchio movie towards the Chris saw mad god too yeah and we saw mad god i think i, I say pinocchio over mad god just because i feel like more people would know it yeah. Did, did Pinocchio come out at the end of 2022 or started this year? Uh, it was the end of 2022. Yeah, and I mean, it looked fantastic. It's still such a familiar medium. And, and it made a movie of the year. Yeah. And it it you, won. <laughs> they can pull off such an unsettling feeling with claymation. It's uh-huh. almost like how you get an uncanny valley with CGI. 
it's like you know what you're seeing isn't as realistic looking, but it still gives you that like weird gut churn a little bit watching it. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, you're exactly right. I agree. Um, so my number three, I'm going to put Evil Dead Rise. Okay. I, I think it's a great step, as we mentioned. It's a great step in the right direction for this franchise. I feel like it kind of adds a little bit more to a franchise that was seemingly kind of at the end of its lifespan, especially after Ash vs. Evil Dead kind of wrapped up the story of uh, Ash as Bruce, and Bruce Campbell uh, has, re- has since retired from the role as Ash. And, you know, the film, I feel like the film in 2013 didn't really garner as much as a cult following as the originals did. So when that character wrapped up and everything kind of tied up, I didn't think this film was going to be much of anything, but it's a welcome surprise. Um, and now I'm just kind of interested to see what they do with it. Are they going to go from, like... Um, just like an uh, or uh, anthology, that's the word I was looking for, mm. an anthology where they're going to have like books, like the Book of the Dead pop up in different locations and cause havoc around different locations, or are we going to see continuation of characters? Because that's something we haven't seen since the original trilogy. Um, it'll just be interesting to see like what, what happens next for this franchise, especially with it being the highest grossing film. I mean, it doesn't seem yeah. like it's going away anytime soon. You know, they definitely primed it for either one they did hint towards an anthology because they said oh there's three books but they Mm -hmm. also you know rather than having one survivor at the end of this one they have of course again spoilers but they have the sister and the youngest daughter of uh, you know the mother mother yeah uh, and she was pregnant Mm -hmm. so we could always see this same woman a few years down the line with a young daughter of her own and maybe like a Slightly or, older daughter. Yeah, slightly older, like maybe like hitting her teens or like mm-hmm. a little bit preteen. Um, and that may be interesting to see them confront this again, a little bit more knowledgeable, almost mm-hmm. kind of like how Ash was in Evil Dead 2. Uh, if they are trying to make a trilogy, since trilogies are still kind of a big thing, that may be a good way to round it off. Or you could also have the main uh, survivor from the first movie, the t- reboot connect with this group. Because oh, yeah, the, the, the implication is that this film... Is, exists in the same realm as the 2013 reboot. It wasn't yeah. like a, a sequel, per se, but I, the the consensus is it exists in the same kind of... That these two do, yeah. yeah. Like it's a like you said, kind of like an anthology. Two yeah. separate stories, same universe. Uh-huh. And that leaves it open to, again, third book, or maybe these two groups pair up and hunt down the third book. Interesting, yeah. Because one thing that they said in this movie is that once these entities are released... Uh, in one of the recordings of the priest, he says, like, the only solution is to run. Like, they'll yeah. follow you, they'll follow you, they'll chase you, but you have to run. Yeah. So maybe it's like both of them are still just haunted by the deadites after mm-hmm. years. And there are so many different directions they could take it. I'm really kind of excited to see what they do with it. Yeah, I am too. But I, I enjoyed it, and I think it's proper number three. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, I think I had it as my two, I'd say. Really? Oh. Yeah, cause, so let's see. I had... I had The Evil Dead 2013. At five. Yep, I had five. Four as Army of Darkness. Three as... Let's see, we do have five of them, right? So, yeah, you put three as the original. Yeah, three as the original. I'd say Evil Dead Rise is number two. Yeah, I mean, I I can understand that. Yeah. Um, Probably pretty much the same points that we discussed. Yeah, same as we just said on it. I mean, I just think it was well done. I think it found its footing from the 2013... The horror was well done. The comedy was uh, toned down, but still kind of gave a nice tone to everything, like a little bit of seasoning on a good meal, and I had fun with it. Um, yeah, I agree. So my number two is going to be Army of Darkness. Wow. 
Wow. So you and I were very spread apart on that. Mm-hmm. I, I personally enjoy Army of Darkness because I think it's what really made Ash the icon that he is. Of course, Evil Dead 2 really took a step up from the first one uh-huh. um, because, of course, Ash wasn't marketed to be the main character of the first movie, but he just kind of fell into that role by the end of the film. The second film was kind of his first role as like the titular main hero. And then by the third one, he's an already established character, but it's like how... How much more campy can we make this character? So much so that he kind of moves from like a final survivor character to like an action hero by the end of it. Yeah. And um, I, I just found it really charming. Of course, in this film, he gets a lot of like one-liners. He gets a, like he's, the you know, the shotguns, the boomstick. And just seeing him in a medieval kind of setting was pretty interesting. Um, of course, the deadites are like claymation in these films. So it was very uh-huh. still campy for a movie to come out in the 90s. Um, almost over 10 years from the original to come out. Um, I just thought the slapstick, there's a lot of slapstick in this movie that was pretty funny. Um, I just, I think it's pretty much the one when fans want to remember the Ash character, this is the one they go to. I, I would, I would think more than two. I think it's definitely, yeah, it's definitely the most memed on. Like there are so many iconic moments from that one. Um, I think is that one, the one where he starts working at the grocery store, that's kind of where he's in, like, yep. the outfit. Yep, at the, the end of the movie. That's the end of the movie. He has the battle with the demon in the grocery store mm-hmm. with the shotgun, and he has got the lever action. And he's Doesn't he ride on a grocery cart down an aisle with the lever action? Yes, and he's yep. just blast. I mean, it's it's over the top. There's a lot of fun to be had in this one. Which I oh, yeah, that's smart. Yep. It looks like we both, in that case, have Evil Dead 2 as our top one. Yep, we do. I'd agree with that. I think Evil Dead 2 really kind of set the tone for what the Evil Dead franchise was going to become. Of course, I feel like they saw, like we mentioned, we, we talked about this before we started, you know, podcast, or before we started talking on this podcast, is I feel like Evil Dead, people saw, or Sam Raimi and the creative team saw kind of the responses the fans had to the original Evil Dead with uh-huh. the last, you know, 30 minutes or so, the super campiness of it, and I feel like fans really stuck with it, especially with Ash's character. And so when they made the second one, I don't think they realized how big of a success the first movie was going to be. So when they made the second one, they saw what, how fans reacted to the first one. And they were just like, all right, well, we're going to make Ash this super like campy character. And, you know, of course, you got the groovy catchphrase mm-hmm. and um, gets the, you know, the chainsaw hand and the shotgun, which is anonymous with the franchise now. And oh, yeah, I just think it, it took a step up on the cabin trope franchise. And we see ash literally go insane in this movie so much so that it's played for laughs oh the camera shot yeah. where it zooms in on his face yeah. covered in blood and he's like laughing it up and, and you have the you know the laughing deer head mounted oh, on the yeah. wall in the cabin and it was just kind of cool to see this character return to kind of face his demons from the first movie but in a nature that's not really played for like dark or horror aspects mm-hmm. it's a it's a funny it's funny it's genuinely funny it allows you to have fun with uh, it. i would i would consider this more of like a dark comedy with like sprinkles of horror in it Kind of like how we mentioned the first Evil Dead, they tried to play for Deadpan and Army of Darkness was like really campy. This one seems like the perfect medium. Like it was that slow transition. This was kind of that little golden spot that they found out to where you could have your horror. They knew how to do the comedy perfectly. The action was great. The shots were great. It's just a fun movie. And like you said, it's very iconic Ash. Yeah, I just thought it was kind of funny. Uh, kind of, well, I should say funny. I thought it was just pretty interesting to see Ash have to kind of you know, fight his demons off again and kind of face the past. And I just thought it was pretty interesting just to see, you know, them actually circle around a character in a franchise that, you know, probably had no direction where it was going to go with the first film. And yeah, I agree with that. Then we get here and 
fans fell in love with the Ash character, and then we got Army of Darkness. So, I mean... So, uh, I wanted to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, I think before we started recording. Didn't you mention Evil Dead Rise almost didn't make it to theaters? Yeah, okay, so this is interesting. So, what had happened was, um, I believe it was a year ago, it was supposed to go straight to HBO Max, because it's a Warner Brothers property. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, test screenings were so positive, and the creative team pushed for it to be made that eventually it got pushed back to this year and was released in theaters in April. Um, I believe it was supposed to be released around the summer or fall last year, like late summer, early fall, just in time for Halloween. And I'm genuinely kind of happy it got pushed to theaters because, I mean, you make that much money, I mean, it kind of spits in the face of a streaming deal, you know? I feel like if it didn't make it to theaters, it would have been one of those movies that kind of slipped between the cracks for us. I mean, there are some movies that I've heard of that are really good, and our entire friend group pretty much missed it because it either had a limited run in theaters, or it didn't make it to our local theater, or it was never in the the first place. Well, for an example, I mean, a lot of this happened during the pandemic, so, like, probably... There's two ways this could go. So, of course, you have Dune, which Dune was released during the pandemic. It's a fantastic movie. Amazing. It quickly became one of my favorite movies of all time. But the thing thing about it was, of course, it was still released in theaters. But Mm -hmm. for a movie that kind of warrants watching on the biggest screen possible, I would think... It releasing on home video, it kind of slipped. Uh, it kind of like slipped through the cracks, unless you read the book or you were a fan of the original film. Yeah, it kind of just slipped through the cracks for a lot of people because it was an HBO Max pretty much day one release. Yeah, it, it really was. It was similarly treated to, I think Dune came out the same day as the Batman, or like within I, the same couple of weeks. Uh, now on HBO, I don't think so. You don't think so? I thought Dune came out in the the fall before the Batman, which Batman came out last March in 2022. I thought Doom released in 2021 at the end of the year, end of 2021. Could be. I may have my timeline a bit off. Yeah. I'm, maybe but, I'm just thinking of the order in which I watched them on HBO, but it did go right, to HBO but it, really it's, it goes fast. to a point that all these films jumped to HBO Max like super fast, but I think they said they're done with that now. Um, I hope so. I mean, I wish I would have seen Dune in theaters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, another movie that went straight to streaming or at least in the U.S. it did, All Quiet on the Western Front, mm-hmm. which was a foreign film, so it may not have been in the United States for that reason. But um, that one went straight to Netflix, and man, it would be amazing to see that on a big screen. That's a good point. I mean, it's such a riveting film. It has you in your seat the entire time. The visuals of it are great. It's a harrowing movie with a really hard, emotional-hitting ending. Um, and I'd love to see audience reactions to that. You know how... Uh-huh. With some like particularly emotionally poignant movies, when everything goes to credits, and especially with All Quiet on the Western Front, you get a clap or oh, I want sit. I want to hear how quiet that theater uh-huh. is because that movie ends on such a solemn note. I remember I watched it really late one night, and the screen went dark, and they don't have any movie playing over the credits for the first couple minutes, or any music playing over the the credits for the first couple minutes. And I could hear, like, a clock ticking halfway across my house. Like, it was so quiet, and it was just, oh, it was such a moment, man. Mm-hmm. And it, just to see something like that in theaters would have been fantastic. Yeah, uh, my, my other point was going to be, you also have movies on the other side of the spectrum that are just straight up forgotten. Like, they're seen, and they're streamed, and then they're just forgotten because they don't have that impact of, like, going to a movie a theater and having that experience. I think the best example I can think of that is a movie we just discussed the other day was uh, Kong versus Godzilla for a movie or Godzilla versus Kong, whatever it is. But Uh for a movie that's built up to be such this like 
literally monster colossal sized event where you have these two titans of you know monster movies going up against one another mm-hmm. it just warrants to be seen on like an IMAX screen or like a huge like theater oh, yeah. screen um, with the sound like blaring of like each punch the monster has or Godzilla's roar or, mm-hmm. you know and all this kind of stuff but when you have to when the you know, of course you can't help the pandemic happen but when you put it on a television screen it just kind of loses, loses luster um, along alongside the fact that the film was so over reliant on you know human storylines. But that's that's another story for another day. That's like but, the um, similar situation with Avatar: The Way of the Water. Not that it went straight uh, to streaming, but a ton of the advertising for Avatar: The Way of the Water was that you have to see this movie in IMAX. See it in three D. See it on the see biggest it in screen 3D, possible. See it in IMAX. It was like whichever way will make it just pop. Go mm-hmm. for. It. I think when we went to see it, we saw it in three D, didn't we? Yeah. It was pretty good. I mean, it was pretty. It, cool it, it, it was less of like a three D effect, like you go for like you know the, the very, you know, kind of entertainment wise, like oh, like you can you can touch what's coming out the screen. Yeah. This one more like limp gave you kind of a depth of field almost. So it it's like did. it separated like what was in the background from what was in the foreground. And three D, well, three D technology in and of itself in movies, I feel like has definitely changed in tone from the early two right, thousands. Yeah. Because I feel like the 3D movies really came about in the early 2000s. Like, I think of the movie Spy Kids 3D. That, to me, is, like, the first one that pops into Well, yeah, mind. but it was used more for, like, that campy nature of, like, well, oh, like, come That's in. exactly my point. Yeah. It was a new technology, and I don't think directors or anybody producing movies exactly knew what to do with mm-hmm. it. So their first instinct was to be like, oh, we have a 3D effect now? How close can we make it look like we're poking the audience uh-huh. in the eyeball with something on screen? And it just... It was fun for the time, but it really quickly got old. Now, they're being a lot more subtle with it, like you said, and they're using it to really give their movies a certain depth mm-hmm. of field. And I, I feel like it enhanced the experience. I did too. But um, I'm, I'm but back to Evil Dead. I'm certainly oh, glad yeah. this, was, uh, this was released in theaters. I feel like, you know, the fact that it's made pretty much like $100 million plus more than what it would have made, probably on HBO Max on its budget... I'm just I'm, I'm really glad that you know audiences really appreciated it and yeah and honestly the fact that we saw it again in a in a fairly full theater three weeks after release mm-hmm. it's kind of really comforting to see after the pandemic because a lot of people were saying that the theaters were going to shut down and that the movie industry mm-hmm. was dying this one and a lot of other recent movies kind of seem to be I was about to say this year specifically especially if you go on a good weekend. I mean, it feels like, you know, like this and Guardians was packed and yeah. a couple months prior, I remember going and seeing uh, the screening of uh, Creed 3 that was packed when uh, me and a couple of our other buddies went to see that. And mm-hmm. It's just really comforting to see that these big major blockbuster films are getting, are pulling in audiences. Of course, you also have Mario that's one of the highest grossing animated movies of all time. But just really, this year has certainly stamped the fact that like, Movies are back. There's been a ton lately. Avatar 2, Maverick, yeah. uh, The Batman. Uh, no Way Home was pretty much no the first Way Home, kind of big one. Guardians 3, Mario. Yeah. I mean, there's been a ton. Of, it, it's like blockbusters are coming back a little bit. Uh-huh. And, we're seeing it. and, and of course, we're, we're stepping into that as we get closer in the summer. Of course, you got, you know, Oppenheimer, Barbie, um, Mission Impossible, Dune 2 in November. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, that'll be winter season. I, I'm just so yeah. Happy. I know that's coming. <laughs> you know I'm not going to show. I mean, not doing. it's just there's so many big blockbuster franchises that are having movies come out this summer. It just it truly. I mean, and you, I really feel like we haven't had a nature like that since 2019 with like big blockbuster movies coming out. Yeah, I agree. It because of the hasn't. pandemic put halts of production on so many of these big franchises that you know now it's it's just awesome to see all these big franchises getting blockbuster movies and 
Heck, it even started probably back in March when we first said Creed. Like, yeah, and I'd since say, then we got like John Wick and oh, for sure. Um, you know, we got le- lesser known films like Knock the Cabin and all this kind of stuff. But oh, Knock the Cabin was a great Knock the Cabin too. was great. But um, and you another know, good subversion to horror too. Very different. Yeah, I just I think it's great that we're getting these new like these new idea films that are kind of very interesting and really well made alongside these big blockbuster movies and parts of franchises that are really well welcomed. Of course, you have a few stinkers in there, but, you know. Now, Knock at the Cabin, that was a Shyamalan? Yes, it was Shyamalan. Yeah. Which Shyamalan and Rainey are both kind of, they have a very different take on directing than a lot of mm-hmm. people, so that was kind of interesting to see. So I agree. it looks like they're both having a pretty active hand in horror yeah. lately. Yeah, they have. It's just good to see, man. It's been... It's been a good time for movies again, thankfully. Yeah, it gives us stuff to talk about every week. Yeah, hopefully things don't slow down too drastically with this uh, writer strike and everything. We'll again be keeping. Of course, on that, of course, the good updates on or that. I shouldn't say the good thing, but the the thing about that is, especially on the film side of things, it, it's more affecting television shows, like we mentioned in our last episode. Uh-huh. Um, the good thing about films is, the a lot of the films are in kind of you know a lot of films are already either in post production or have already been filmed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you won't really see the effect happen until like maybe late 2024 into 2025 with films that have just kind of been announced or just started writing script, uh, the scripts being written. Uh, of course, we mentioned Blade. But, you know, that's not off till a while. And it just depends how long the strike goes. If it goes to the end of summer, we might see a few implications. But for now, I think we're safe on the film front. We'll certainly be steady rolling for a while. I think most of the reading that I did said that films typically aren't affected until about a year after the fact. Yeah. Um, so the pipeline is good and healthy for now. We'll have plenty of news to give. We'll be giving uh, updates uh, weekly with latest entertainment news, stuff like that, and especially on the writer's strike, keeping everybody updated. Uh, aside from that, I feel like we've been pretty comprehensive on Evil Dead. What do you think? Yeah, what, what did you give Evil Dead, by the way? Oh, you know, I didn't actually give it a rating. Uh, if I had to give it a letterboxed... Probably give it about a four. Probably. About I, a I was overall. struggling between like a three and a half and a four, but I ended up going a four and... Because it was better. I gave some other films a four that I thought deserved it, but I think this one is a little better than some of the other ones. So. If anything, I feel like I would have leaned almost closer to a four and a half on my Really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to me, when I reflect on it, I just can't think of it having too many flaws. There were slower parts in the pacing, but they were purposeful, and I feel like they staged other parts of the film that it made themselves necessary. Um, and it was fun. I had a good experience with it. A lot of horror films, if they aren't done well, it's very easy to get bored with them. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel bored for a moment in this one. No, I didn't either. I didn't either. But, um, yeah, I probably said it for as well. Yeah, I think that's a fair one. It kind of mm-hmm. puts us both kind of in the middle of our ranges of what we were thinking. Very nice. Yeah. Well, uh, we appreciate anybody who's out there listening. Again, we will be trying to post twice weekly, once with uh, the latest news and entertainment, again, particularly the writer's strike for the time being. And after we see Fast X Fast this X weekend, is coming this weekend. We'll be yeah. seeing Fast X this Sunday, and hopefully we'll be able to get a, a review out by Monday or Tuesday evening. We'll try to shoot for them. You think mm. that'll work for you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Great. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you all for listening.